Straight A's Pod listeners, welcome back. Welcome back not only to another episode, but two episodes. We had such a great time on our Chop Up that we're dividing it into two parts. You are going to love it. So, settle in with your favorite coffee, tea, beer, cocktail, whatever you choose, uh, and ride with us around a whole host of topics in part one of this two-part episode of The Chop Up. Welcome everyone to the Straight A's podcast, where we take you on a deep dive into the unique stories of independent school education. I'm Abe Waymiller, one of the four Straight A's, and I'll be running point for us on this episode. With me are all three, yes, all three of the other A's. Art Hall. What's up, Dan? Amani Reed. Hello, hello. And Andre Withers. Gentlemen, welcome to the pod. It's good to be with you as always. It is good to be back. Right. Back in the lab. Feels like it's been a long time. It does feel like it's been a long time. So before the fellas and I get into the meat of our conversation, I want to take a moment to recognize the Merman School for making season three of the pod possible through its generous sponsorship of our programming. For those of you who don't know, Merman is a K-8 school in Los Angeles, California. Since its founding in 1962, Merman has been challenging and inspiring highly gifted children to become complex and creative problem solvers and multidimensional and analytical thinkers, as well as contributing and active members of our local and global communities. Thank you to the Merman School for your work and for your support of our work. Now, this episode is what we here on the pod like to refer to as a chop up or as one of my fellow co-hosts like to, likes to say, in our parlance, this is a chop-up. <laughs> or, as another one of my fellow and bougier co-hosts likes to say, in our parlance, this is a chop-up. <laughs> However you call it out, the importance of this genre in our world is this. Whereas most of our episodes allow us to spend time with interesting guests from across the independent school landscape, our chop-up episodes allow the four of us, or some subset of the four of us, to momentarily retreat into our longtime friendship and colleagueship for a topical discussion with each other. Our hope is that our conversation will produce some interesting nuggets along the way that will provide insight into what life is like in schools today. We appreciate you coming along for the ride. So gentlemen, here's what I'm proposing we do with our time together. And by propose, I mean, here's what I've decided we're going to do because y'all put me in charge of this episode. (laughs) You're doing doing a great job right now. Well, thank you very much. Hey, We've spent some time on various episodes chronicling how schools have been managing life this year with all the challenges that have been front and center, namely the COVID-19 pandemic, but also the attention the Black Lives Matter movement has brought to inequities in the educational landscape. We could certainly talk about that again, as obviously those challenges and others are still front and center on a daily basis. But I'd like what I'd like to do instead is take us up to a higher level to that proverbial 30,000 feet and start to address some of the longer term effects or at least realizations that have might might have started to become clearer in the midst of our ongoing trials and tribulations stated more briefly. 
because obviously I have not stated it briefly at this point, stated more briefly, what does 2020 mean for the future of independent schools? It's got to be, it's got to be something that we can't define. Uh, we're going to, we're going to try Art. We're going to okay. try, we're yeah. going to try to put a button on this 2020 and provide some meaning out of it. So Imani, I want to start with you. Of course. You said in one, of course I do. Right? <laughs> you, <laughs> of course you do. Of course. I'm ready. Because it's 2020. Okay. Because it's 2020. Now, actually, there is a reason for that, because if we back up to a previous episode that we did early in 2020, and I believe it was actually our first episode of 2020, uh, Amani actually leads off that episode. I was listening to it the other night saying something along the lines of 2020 bringing us good things. <laughs> Lies. So, well, we, we, we started out strong. Actually, we did. 2020 did start out strong. Um you know, let's take the rabbit in a race, right? Twenty two. I know. Like I know. In the Olympics, you're like, look at that cat go and then fade. <laughs> so um, I think the hard. I, go, go ahead. I, what I was yeah. going to say. I think the hardest thing about all this is we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen because we've never experienced life in a pandemic and the multiple pandemics that we're experiencing right now. The, the, the impact of the topics you just talked about, plus the impact of the economy is huge for our independent schools. And that doesn't even really touch on the inequities that exist for black and brown communities as we fight and challenge through, through all of this. Um, so when I think about what's really on the horizon, I think there are three big things that are changing. One is looking at access. Really, who do our independent schools serve? Um, our histories are complicated, but right now, the idea of us being able to continue with business as usual is just not possible. So every school, every single school has to start thinking about how, who they serve, how they, how they engage their community in terms of the, the future of the school, and particularly the choices they're making, how that aligns with, with the mission. And that, that really connects to the second part, which is the changing financial model. For a long time, we've known that independent schools were structured in such a way that wasn't sustainable. Almost every one of our schools relies on an endowment or an annual fund to make sure they can balance the budget. With what we saw over the course of this year, schools had to make very difficult decisions. Decisions about enrollment, decisions about hiring and, and salaries, decisions about building and facilities, not to mention the investments that were required to make sure that we were all compliant with uh, safety standards that were continuing to evolve and change. So thinking about the flexibility and the limitations of the current financial model is, is really going to be uh, something that all schools are going to struggle with. And I would say for the next 10 years, probably. Um, but in the end, the, the thing I worry the most about and the thing I'm thinking the most about is really the impact that it has on teachers and leadership for our schools. Um, there's a concept of cultural taxation and the idea that we carry burdens of these conversations uh, differently within our communities. And this is real. Teachers are working harder than they ever have. This job is more complicated and more nuanced than ever before. School leaders are solving problems that have never existed and trying to develop solutions that they may not be able to maintain for week to week because the conditions are changing so rapidly. So I worry that when it comes down to hiring, 
Uh, we're looking for a different candidate than we have in the past. We're looking at a different candidate pool than we have in the past. And the skills necessary to be an effective leader in, in the future of independent schools is different than it ever has been. So as I think about what's coming next and, and as we end 2020, um, access, financial, financial resources, and really what the, what the staffing and hiring is going to look like over the next couple of years. Those are the things I'm thinking about. Trey, mm-hmm. let me get your take on that. Uh, you know, Monty said in previous discussions that our schools just aren't going to be able to go back to the way they were before this year. Let's let's hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think there I think there are some that are hoping to go back to the way things were. I think there are some who are hunkering down um, and just trying to get through. Um, and I think there are those who are committed to, and I don't want to make light of anything, but committed to not wasting a good crisis. And they're going to use all of what's what's been thrown at them in 2020 to develop a certain, a different level of clarity around their mission. They're going to develop a certain level of clarity around what is core and or what is key uh, in delivering that mission. You know, for years, independent schools have done the equivalent of, um, you know, the, the, uh, global race wars, right? We, you know, when one country gets a nuclear missile, another one gets a nu- nuclear missile. Independent schools have done similar, right? One school gets a turf field, another school gets a turf field. And one school builds a new science building, the other builds a new science building. Um, and, you know, there's this sort of cons- constant ad, ad, ad. Um, and some of that has been mostly around keeping up with the Joneses as opposed to being really, really clear about who they are, who they serve, what they want to be, and how they're going to deliver on mission. So I, I, I agree with Imani's point to a certain degree that schools won't go, there won't be a back to normal, um, but I think there are a number of schools who are really wanting to and hoping that there will be that um, because there's a certain level of not only comfort in it, um, but that's the way that they've known how to operate. And I think as independent schools, um, we've got to think bigger, bolder uh, than that, and I think our, um, I think our, I think there'll be a smaller number of schools who will really come out of 2020 with that different level of clarity, um, and quite honestly, you know, be ready to run a different kind of race. So Art, I want to dig a bit deeper into that same theme with you, but I want to tap specifically into your expertise in the area of student life. Um, you know, you're a former dean of students, uh, you're a division head, uh, you manage a couple of lovely and talented middle school students in your own household, uh, <laughs> right? You so, tell it. <laughs> so you just spend a lot of time in that in that kid world. What are you seeing in terms of fundamental changes in the way that our students conduct their daily lives, either at school or related to school. I feel like I gotta, I gotta come with it. Cause you put expertise on there. Yeah. Like well, anytime, you, know. you know, anytime you put expertise on there, people are like, do tell. It's like, it's like you always, it's like you say, always say, all right, everybody needs a good hype man. Everybody uh, needs a good hype man. Everybody needs a good hype man. Uh, you know, it, I think the, the theme that I just heard, um, you know, what schools wish they could do and what they're trying to run to. I think Dre just said it, like, I never even thought about it, like mutual assured destruction. If you get a turf field, I'm going to get a turf field. 
system. You get an electron microscope. I'm getting an electron microscope, the whole nine. Yeah, um, yeah that's, that's definitely not sustainable. But I think when I first got into independent schools, I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, I talked to one head of school who said, uh, you know, it was it was nothing for a school to come out with a 5% annual tuition increase. And just and just keep running with it. And to your point, Abe, you know, what impact does that have on the students? Um, you know, I think we've all seen a couple of waves of, of how prep schools operate um, and how they, you know, will talk with students and, and reassure students that the effort that they're putting in at our schools uh, will pay dividends, if not immediately, definitely over the lifetime of their education and lifelong learning. Um, but now I think, you know, students are, are looking at us and saying, no, what's the immediate impact? Um, you know, what, what is, you know, I've, I'm now being very comfortable with my race and my ethnicity. So show me how, you know, I can use this to, uh, forward my, my goals in life. Um, you know, students of color are no longer thinking of themselves, or I wouldn't say no longer, but, um, they're starting to minimize the notion in their minds that, I'm a visitor at this school and um, they are embracing the feeling of, hey, no, I have a voice here just like I would if I were at my neighborhood public school. And, and we want them to have those voices, um, you know, schools, whether you have one or whether you don't, um, schools are thinking long and hard about what social justice means. What what does diversity mean? It means a lot more. It means it has a different meaning, I should say, now that we're work through some of the Black Lives Matter and people are starting to understand what what race means in the United States. Um, and our kids are no longer just watching, and, and it's a beautiful thing, but our kids are no longer just watching footage about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Um, they are living it now. They're, they're in a moment where they're trying to understand their relationship with each other, whether it's a Black friend with a white friend or a white friend with a um, you know, with a, a Latin ex friend and so on and so forth. I mean, the, their generation now has all sorts of combinations of friendships that are possible and they need to navigate that. So I think every school needs to understand that whether you want to or not, whatever, whatever mission you had and what you thought, oh, you know, to Dre's point again, I, we have to put diversity in our mission statement. We have to put it in there. Well, you know, whether you, whether it's in there or not, um, you are you are really staring down the barrel of um, students who want more. They are thirsty to understand their heritage, their culture, and um, and what it means to them going forward. So, Art, what are the like? Just digging a little bit deeper on that. What are the things that you've seen schools doing to support that? change in student mentality, um, either things that are working or frankly, things that, that aren't, um, horses, you know, you bring in horses, like (laughs) (laughs) that's a shout out to, uh, Mr. Withers. Withers. (laughs) Therapy is a thing. Mm -hmm. It is horses and rabbits, horses and rabbits. Uh, <laughs> no, but it really, honestly, you know, to support to support the kids and, and the changes that are going on, you do see more open uh, conversations uh, around wellness and therapy. You do. And I mean, I was, you know, that I started the comment comment off with, with talking about horses. But um, I think before 
you know, you really did have students who were kind of like, oh, that's for those kids. That's for the kids who really can't hold it together. Uh, and now, you know, uh, there are many schools, regardless of staffing, regardless of what they have in their building, their curriculum and how they're looking at how we support these students hinges a lot on their wellness, their mental health. Um, we want our students to be successful, but we don't want them to be, um, you know, so driven that they forget about the one thing that's important and that's the person inside them. And so, you know, sometimes it's conversations around how you're feeling today. Sometimes it's conversations around, have you checked in with your friend? And more importantly, sometimes it's just conversations about how you are navigating this academic world, this high pressure academic world. I, I say to parents all the time, um, you know, prep schools are a great thing, and but you have to understand the navigation point of a prep school. And it, it's, it's good that we're doing this, uh, you know, this podcast so folks can understand that we all work at them, we can navigate them. And when you when you fail to understand that you have to take care of yourself just as much academically as you do mentally, um, if, you, if you don't balance those two out, then you can kind of lose point of why you're at an institution and why you're trying to become the best you can. Hmm. So Dre, talk about, let's hear from you a little bit about that same student dynamic, uh, but I want you to focus in on the residential context, given your familiarity with boarding schools. What are you seeing in terms of project, projected shifts uh, in that particular educational model? Right. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think that the, the, the data con continues to show that Boarding schools on the whole, single sex boarding schools in particular, uh, are definitely on the decline. Um, but I do think that if boarding schools get it right, this is a moment to really stem that tide. Um, Interesting. And here's, and here's why. Here's why I think that. I, I think I think that that for so long, boarding school has been defined as um, gen generically, but you know pretty accurately as, as essentially just the place you lay your head, right? It's the, it's the, it, it's, you live there and you go to school there. And I think that where we are right now with all of what 2020 has, has given us, if not even forced upon us um, and the slow climb out of all that, um, the, this whole congregate living piece um, can be really value added in a very different way. We can be less about residential um, and more about um, educational post your academic block, right? And I don't mean just like, um, you know, living with, a, with living with a roommate and or, you know, um, having, um, you know, sort of the, the family style meals. I really mean understanding um, how to find agency, understanding to the, 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 the dynamic that Art was talking about in, in terms of navigation, um, you know, looking at the way in which we intentionally design, um, you know, experiences of, of, of maturation and relationship building and so on. In a lot of ways, boarding schools have been sort of coincidental in that. And I think that, that the more intentional we are, if there's real curricular design around that work, um, we can be a place where um, it really is practiced 
um, and uh, mastered um, in a way that really, again, brings not only value from the parent perspective and or value to the to the to the high school experience but also value to every relationship that you have and value um in the educational landscape so i i I think there's i think there's a real opportunity there but um you know again we've got to seize it we've got to stop thinking about you know the adult folks in a boarding school as just your coach and your advisor and your dorm adult and really think about them more as that that ally that trusted adult that um, uh, that wellness coach, you know, those, those are the ways in which I think there's a shift that can be made, um, and, and on the adult side that again, helps you, helps us to, um, redefine what, what the boarding school model is, um, redefine how we think about, um, and are going to approach the educational landscape, um, you know, to stem that tide. It's there it, uh, for the, for the, for the taking, but, um, you know, I worry that, that the, again, you know, too many schools are just going to hunker down and not take advantage of it. What's, what's an example? I'm not asking you to give away all your secrets here, but what, what's an example <laughs> of a, a step a school, a boarding school might take to right. move in that direction? Like give us a sense of what that might look like. Right. Well, I had a, I had this, 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 you know, really big 35, 30, 35,000 foot conversation um, with, uh, you know, our good friend, Tim Fish at NEIS. Um, and we were talking um, about a similar, a similar question, um, but, you know, he was fascinated um, with us wrestling with what's the 2.0 version of boarding school. Um, and um, one of the things that we, that we played around with was what if boarding school really wasn't a single address, right? What mm. if boarding school was the lived experience, but it didn't just have a singular campus, a singular uh, a, a, a singular address, but instead, you know, in different pocket or not pockets, in different uh, cohorts, um, students were able to reside in Washington, D.C. They were able to reside in Wilmington, Delaware, Charlotte, North Carolina, to not only understand the civics of a particular city, but to look at the urban infrastructure, to look at the public health, to um, to, to look at the population density, to look at the um, to look at the um, the environmental issues. There's there's a there's a different way that you can define boarding and or congregate living. There's a different way that you can define living where you go to school. Um, and now, granted, that's a big price tag. It's a big you know. Risk management uh, puzzle to solve, but 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 let your mind go there for a moment to really, um, you know, you talk about thinking creatively about education. You think about um, how do you redefine the lived experience. You think about how to really um, get kids out of the, you know, into the community. Well, what if the school itself wasn't bound by a single? community. Um, so I, I, I think there's any number of, of, of different other more practical um, examples you might be able to pull out of that. Um, but but a, on a very large scale, I think that could be really powerful. And again, that's about that's about agency and navigation. You've got to think differently about how you conduct yourself, how you manage your learning when when you're when your boarding school, again, simply isn't about where you lay your head, uh, but it's about all the different places that you're going to see. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah. I don't know. And fellas, I don't know if you, uh, Arden, Monty, I don't know if you caught this or any listeners caught this, but, you know, I started out the, our conversation, uh, on this episode talking about us listening or, or, or doing a, a 30,000 foot look at these issues. And, and those of you probably cut Dre knows what I'm going to say. He took it up to 35,000. Yeah, I, I right noticed there. that. You right. noticed that, right? Yeah. And he took it to, it, I think it was 38. Eight. I mean, he just, I think he took it to 30. He was like, he was like, look, you fly that throttle. The, pulled that yeah, throttle. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's like, you, you've done it with the low, low level single prop. I'm, I'm going up. I'm going a, up. a lot of, a lot of Tim's models have an iceberg or a mountain. So I figured that we were actually climbing up over to get over that. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. The symbolism works. It's just the way he thinks. It's the way he thinks. Blows my mind. I'm I'm sitting here like I'm just sitting here at 30,000. And he's like, bro. I just screamed over. I'm 8,000 feet higher than you, dude. I'm 8,000 feet higher than you. So, Amani, uh, uh, um, shifting gears again to a different sort of an educational context, you know, we've had some guests in this space before who have talked about the beauty of the K-8 school format. And that's a format with which you have, uh, with which you're particularly familiar as well. So to what extent uh, at this point in time are students and families thinking differently now about life after middle school and what they're looking for in a high school experience? Yeah, from a 46.7 thousand foot view. Uh, up again, up again. Always got to be out somebody. By the time you know, we get to the end, I'm, look, massive, like Saturn, <laughs> SpaceX. Here's, here's, what I, here's what I would say listening yeah. to this. You, you know, K-8 schools, well, all schools are relational, right? Our, our educational experience is relational. And K-8 schools really occupy the sweet spot between what both Dre and Art were talking about, really, because K-8 schools are this, this pure time in, in education where we get to really work, it, work and focus on the process more than the outcomes. Yeah. We get to focus on who the students are. They get to learn the skills and values um, and competencies to learn and to learn anything, really. Um, and they develop the skills of, of critical thinking without a lot of the pressure that comes from some of the other outcomes that happen in a, in a K-12 school, particularly college acceptance. We're, we're far enough away from those sorts of things that we're really allowed to explore teaching and learning in, it, in, its, in its purest sense. But what I think teachers are, excuse me, what families are seeing differently now is they are focusing more on what schools are doing to be innovative and flexible. I think that's the idea that there's more than one way to learn. And I, I like Andre's idea of changing just the whole package in terms of, of what, it, what it looks like. Uh, families want that. Families want a little bit of experiential education. They want to have a chance where their children can um, really put their hands and sink into something and they want to make sure they're prepared for the next challenge. So it's a it's a new way to solve the the new world new world problems, which I think is something that's critical. Um, the other big challenge I see is for K eight schools, and I, I referenced this earlier, is just the cost of education. For when you look around New York City, K 
kindergarten begins at $50,000 fairly stand. That's fairly standard throughout the city. Um, And of course there are financial aid programs. And of course there are other, there are other options there, but when a family is looking at that type of investment um, over nine years before you get to high school, that's a significant investment. And so families are making just really different choices around how they're making that analysis, what they're looking for and what they're, they're willing to, to pay for. Um, we talked last, last season, is it last season or last year on the podcast? I'm not sure what the right, what the right verbiage is. Uh, but in our, in our last season, we talked about um, NAIS's work around the jobs to be done uh, paradigm and the analysis they were doing. And I haven't seen the new data around that, but my guess is that the jobs have changed. Now, what, what families want this, what the job that, that families want schools to do is different in 2020 and 2021 than it was in 2018, 2019. So I think that we're going to continue to see the K-8 model evolve and change because those jobs are going to be so much more important, particularly thinking about the social emotional context that, that Art talked about before. We're well positioned to do that. Um, and I will say very selfishly, it's also a time where kids get to be kids. They get to try something new. They're, they get to try a new sport or they try a new activity or they try to be in a different type of production that where at the high school level, the stakes are just that much higher. So the opportunity may not be there for them. They're competing with their time in a different place. So uh, K-8 schools are just a beautiful place to figure out who you are. Yeah. And when we think about that flexibility question and the ability to change and adapt, especially in this current time, it's interesting to hear you talk about that difference between middle school and uh, middle school and upper school setting, because upper schools really do have that um, that close tie. It's such a close tie to that 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 college application process and the college matriculation process and everything that comes along with that, that any change is just is influenced by what's coming next. And at least to a certain extent, uh, without that dynamic in play in middle school for the students or even for the entire school structure, you've got more flexibility to play around with some things there. And that may lead to the ability to innovate and change in a different way in this era um, than it might at the upper school level. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out. It's important to say there are outcomes and it is Mm -hmm. critical for students to be academically prepared for high school. So this is not without the focus on, on the process and and really learning. Um, But, but absolutely without the, without that pressure, we're not a college prep high school or a middle school. We don't, we don't have to be that we actually get to focus on where students are in the K-8 model right now and help them get to that next level. And maybe being an upper school prep school is a little bit, at least a little bit, a little bit less pressure, right? Than a college prep. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you'll, you'll see a lot of the differences also between K-12 schools and K-8 schools, how their middle schools are run. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, of course, as a, as a K-8 school, we have our students apply to high school but there is a different structure in a K-8 school in those middle school years, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade often than there is in a K-12 schools uh, program, even in those same years. Mm-hmm. Very true. So Dre, let's, um, 
Let's talk a little bit about curriculum uh, and any shifts you're starting to see bubble to the surface there. You know, as the country and the world change dramatically around us, how are schools needing to respond to those changes in terms of both what and how they're thinking about teaching in order to stay relevant? And maybe let's have you start with the what part of that question and focus your response uh, mainly on curricular content. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you guys were, were talking just a minute ago about, about the, the pressure from that next level. Um, I think, you know, certainly there's going to always be, um, especially on the minds of parents, on the minds of independent school parents in a, in a, in a very sort of uber way, is that college matriculation. Um, and um, I think college board, the college board is certainly, um, been slow to change, um, but is making some significant changes. Um, and I think some welcome changes for, uh, for educators and or for schools. Um, because, uh, you know, as um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one that is a fan of trickle down economics, but I think the point is, is true in, 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 in education, that as colleges go, so goes high school, as high school goes, so goes middle school and so on. Um, and so I think that pressure from that, the, the sort of end goal um, is always there. And I think the more college board evolves, the more um, relief that all of us have to um, be beholden to that, uh, to that goal. Um, I, I, think, I think on a curricular level, what I think is going to be a fascinating and much needed shift is going to be moving from what schools wanted to do with interdisciplinarity into intersectionality. I think schools have tried to show the interconnectedness between world languages and science and math and so on. And I think, you know, the, the really strong schools have, have really done some curriculum design where, you know, in your you know, either, you know, particular grade level experience or certainly over the course of six, if not four years, you could sort of see that, that interconnectedness. Um, but I, I think, I think there's going to be an immediate, well, not maybe not an immediate, but a, a, a fairly um, swift move to more of that intersectionality, helping kids see in a skill-based and even just a, both a skill-based and a conceptual way, the, the intersection between things like anti-racism and the public health, um, seeing the inter intersectionality of, um, of government policy and the environment, of seeing, um, you know, uh, sort of a, almost, almost sort of a global if-then in their, in, in their curriculum, right? When this happens, Here's the impact, right? And some of that impact is going to be direct and great. Some of that impact is going to be indirect and bad. Um, but 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 that right there in itself is is a critical thinking skill, right? That in itself is a critical analysis. And so I think that's where you'll see the skill part of it. But I think there's going to be, I hope, you know, there's sort of what I hope I'll see and what I fear I won't see. But I, I, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll begin to see on the curricular front more um, of, a, of, a, of a real um, 
pedagogical design toward that interdisciplinarity, helping kids um, in, a, in, a, in, a mass, in a mastery driven way see what happens when these two very large forces come into play with one another um, because that is that is their world right whether it's whether it's their whether it's their um, their relationships whether it is uh, their finances whether it is um, the choices that they make in terms of career path whether it is um, where they choose to get their first apartment there is massive intersectionality and massive choice um, and I think what we want is for for all of our citizenry, all of our all of our students, to be able to better to make better, more informed uh, choices with an understanding of what the differential impact is um, across all different types of levels. Was I right? You're loving part one of this episode, aren't you? By now, you should be ensconced in all the good inside jokes and deep reflections of the four hosts of the Straight A's podcast. We've got so much more to cover in part two. Be on the lookout for that episode in the next week or so. In the meantime, be sure to help us thank and recognize the Merman School for their generous support of the Straight A's podcast. Founded in 1962, Merman has been challenging and inspiring highly gifted children to become complex and creative problem solvers and multidimensional analytical thinkers, as well as contributors and active members of the local and global community. Learning to the power of Merman. In the meantime, thanks for listening and supporting the pod. Subscribe and like, as always, and follow us on social media at Straight Ace Pod. Take care.